0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hundreds of thousands of Americans on edge after seeing what Hurricane Dorian did to the Bahamas. The lead starts right now. Quote, almost 48 hours with nonstop carnage, unquote. That's how one survivor is now describing the destruction Dorian inflicted on the Bahamas as the storm today takes a dangerous turn, steering closer to the east coast of the United States. A bunch of blarney, the vice president's confusing attempted explanation for going so far out of his way so he could stay at President Trump's hotel and resort in Ireland. And... Breaking news. We now know why the West Texas mass shooter failed his gun background check. And with Washington missing from the gun debate, or the Senate at least, Walmart is stepping in. Could a company with a complicated history with guns actually be blazing a trail?
2: This is CNN Breaking News.
1: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with the breaking news. Hurricane Dorian's destruction in the Bahamas and what that might mean as the storm makes its way up the east coast of the United States. New images in today show the catastrophe in the Bahamas. What were family homes and quaint resort towns pulverized, pummeled? The U.S. Coast Guard and the U.S. Customs and Border Protection have joined the Bahamian rescue mission, searching by air and by land. For any signs of life, the death toll now stands at 7, but officials expect that number to rise. As Dorian moves north, Florida beaches are getting pelted by outer bands. Dorian could then slam the Carolinas. Port cities such as Charleston, South Carolina, are bracing for near-record storm surge. Let's start with what Dorian has done. CNN's Patrick Ottman just got a look at the utter destruction of a key airport in the
3: Bahamas. We are on the runway at the Freeport Airport. It has been inaccessible for days. There was a river between the rest of the city and this airport. It was completely underwater. It looked like the waves were crashing. Waves were crashing against this airport. Look how destroyed it is right now. Just about every side, eight feet to 10 feet up, has been leveled, ripped in, torn in, Look at it now. I don't recognize it. There's not a wall standing. You think about the need this island has right now for a functioning airport to get injured people out, to get supplies in, and this airport right now is completely destroyed. I've never seen anything like it in my life. This is complete and utter devastation like I've never seen. Jose's gonna point the camera over here. Look at this, that's a wheel. This is the underside of a plane. This is what's left of the wing. You think of the force required to throw a plane from the runway into a terminal. If anybody was here, I don't know how they would have survived. I've seen a lot of damage on this island. This is the absolute most devastated area I've seen so far. It will be impossible for anybody who is injured or just wants to get off the island to leave from here. Aid will not be able to come in to this part of the airport into this airport at all because it's just a debris field now. So if help is gonna come, it's gonna have to come through some other way, boats, another airfield, but this is really the only air, this is the only airfield for this island and it is in utter ruins.
1: It's Patrick Oppmann at the Freeport Airport, which is in Grand Bahama, in the Bahamas. Let's turn to Dorian's threat to the United States right now. With me, CNN meteorologist Jennifer Gray. And Jennifer, the threat appears to be more along the Carolina coast uh, than to Florida.
4: You're exactly right. It it pretty much paralleled the coast of Florida. I mean, Florida was playing with fire for a couple of days. It could have gotten just a little bit closer. We would have seen much bigger impacts across Florida. But luckily, it did just parallel the coast. Of course, we are looking at South Carolina, North Carolina now. I think that's where the biggest threat lies. The storm still has 105 mile per hour winds gusts of 125 it's still a category two moving at nine miles per hour so is moving much faster than it was through the bahamas here's a closer look you can see right there the center of the storm off the coast of jacksonville and as it continues its northward journey we'll continue to see the rain bands as well as the 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 winds start to pick up in places like savannah and charleston Uh, that's really where we're going to be concerned the most But we are still getting those rain bands pushing on shore in Florida as well. It's going to pull away from there, make its journey to the north, and then eventually the east. The concern with Charleston is it's very vulnerable, it's low-lying, and any surge of water that comes in, which they'll get quite a bit of storm surge, can flood Charleston very easily. So we'll be talking about a Category 2 in this area uh, throughout the uh, midday range tomorrow and then by the evening pulling away. But we could be looking at record or near record tides for the Charleston area, second to just Hugo, and that's huge if people lived in Charleston during during Hugo and remember. Cape Hatteras, uh, the Outer Banks, uh, we are looking at a Category 2 there by the end of the week. So, Jake, this is far from over. I know we've been talking about this storm for a long time. Some people have fatigue with this storm, but it is still very serious, and folks in the Carolinas need to take it seriously.
1: All right, Jennifer Gray, thank you so much. Uh, She was talking uh, about Charleston there. Let's go to CNN's Brian Todd, who made his way to Charleston, South Carolina. And Brian, uh, as you heard Jennifer Grey just say, uh, that's the low country, a low lying city at sea level. And that's the big problem as, as Dorian approaches
5: absolutely right jake we're going to show you an illustration of that this city very vulnerable because of how low it is to sea level this is a road right next to the ashley river river but right also next to downtown just a short time ago we got a short burst of rain the outer edges of the storm and a little bit of high tide and this whole area was washed over with water this isn't technically flooding this is just standing water but look how vulnerable this low-lying area is we're going to avoid the cars here and show you though over here is the ashley river Just look at where that river comes up, where the marshes hit, and the marshes pretty much come right to the road here. That is what makes this area so vulnerable. Uh, They say that the storm is really going to be feeling, we're going to be feeling the effects here in the next 24 to 36 hours. They've had 360,000 plus people evacuate from the coastal areas of South Carolina. Jake, almost half of them have uh, evacuated from the Charleston area. And you talk to local officials that we've been talking to all day who say that what really speaks to the mindset of people here is that experience with Hurricane Hugo. Thirty years ago this month, Hurricane Hugo came up the Charleston Harbor as a cat four. It hit just a little bit north of Charleston, and it was utter devastation for weeks, they said. Uh, National Guard troops on the streets for weeks, power outages for weeks. One city official told me a short time ago he was here during that period. He left, and when he came back, he said, I didn't talk to one person who didn't regret staying through that storm. So Hurricane Hugo speaks to the mindset of these people and why they want to leave Charleston. It's a little bit unlike the people in Florida who many of them you talk to say, I can ride this out. In South Carolina, in this area, in Charleston, they've had so many experiences with uh, bad hurricanes. Also in recent years, this is going to be basically the uh, third punishing hurricane to hit this place in three years, Jake. And they're wondering how much more they can take here.
1: All right, Brian Todd in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, thanks so much. I want to go back to the Bahamas, specifically to CNN's Patrick Ottman, uh, who's live for us in Freeport. And, Patrick, it, it's hard to get a signal uh, right now out from there. So uh, crossing our fingers here, tell us more about the destruction you saw today.
3: Well, uh, first we tried to go out to the area where we were. You may remember yesterday where they were doing the boat rescues, the jet skis and the boats. And amazingly enough, the water there has all receded. We saw boats that were thrown up on people's lawns. Uh, there are still rescues going on on the far east end of this island. It's still underwater. It's absolutely impossible for us to get there either by boat or car. Uh, we saw Coast Guard helicopters flying overhead, and we saw lots and lots of people coming in this area where there are hundreds of homes to survey the damage to see if their neighbors family or, or just their friends are, are in those homes uh, essentially seeing uh, who's still alive Jake. Uh, a lot of people when they came and saw their homes that they were completely gutted and every home here was underwater, uh, you know, people had tears in their eyes, what can you say? Then we had heard that the airport uh, was even worse than, than uh, previously uh, had been advertised uh, and we went out to the airport and saw, I know you, you played uh, some of that material. Just total destruction. I mean, whole planes, uh, Cessnas and Pipers, thrown around like little toys. There was a wing with a wheel still connected that had somehow gone into one of the terminals at the airport. The international terminal we couldn't get into uh, because we were told it was too dangerous to go in. It's still standing, but like the entire airport, it was underwater for several days. So we are starting to get a better picture, if not a complete picture, of the destruction here, and it's worse than we had thought.
1: All right. Patrick Ottman, with the great reporting. Uh, Stay safe, my friend. Appreciate it. Uh, As the storm is barreling down on the United States, President Trump used an altered map of Hurricane Dorian's path while in the Oval Office today uh, to show that Alabama might have been hit, as he had said, and been mocked online for saying. CNN's White House correspondent Caitlin Collins joins me now. Caitlin, people are actually have now died from the storm, and President Trump is still focused on proving that his tweet was correct, is it? Well,
6: that- and remember, the president is in charge of overseeing the federal response to a storm like this. So that's why it's incredibly important what a president says in a time like this and this all goes back to this briefing today in the oval office this hurricane briefing the president was receiving where he pulled out this dated map a map that he received during a briefing last week that showed the projection of the storm of hurricane Dorian and it had this little thing called the cone of uncertainty on it that's where the potential the storm could go but the experts aren't exactly sure because of course like this one did it turned But of course, today it had a little addition to it, this black sharpie line that had been drawn on top of that projection cone, showing that Alabama could potentially be in the path of Hurricane Dorian, even though experts have said that was not the case. This comes after President Trump tweeted on Saturday that Alabama could be impacted by the storm, could be hit by the storm, something he insisted later on at the FEMA headquarters, even though the National Weather Service in Birmingham, Alabama, came out in a tweet and said Alabama was not going to be impacted in any way by Hurricane Dorian. Still, since those tweets came out, since the president was criticized for saying that they could be impacted when they were likely not to be, according to the experts, the president has insisted, yes, Alabama was in the projected path of this storm, as he did today with this doctored map, which, of course, there are questions now about who it is that altered it. The president said today he doesn't know. We know he's famous for using Sharpies to write letters to people. DHS is saying they did not provide the president with this altered map. And NOAA, which handles a lot of this, said they don't know. And they're referring us back to the White House on this.
1: Okay. I mean, people are dead from the storm and others might also be killed. And he's focused on proving something that he said that was apparently wrong is actually right. I mean, that's bizarre. All right. Thank you so much, Caitlin Collins. Uh, Stick around. We're going to keep you on the show today. Hurricane Dorian leaving behind a path of destruction, but the monster storm may not be the best example of the climate crisis our planet is facing. We'll explain why next. Then President Trump has reportedly encouraged members of his administration to stay at his properties, but now Vice President Mike Pence's visit to one of those properties is causing some problems for his boss. Stay with us. Welcome back. In our world-lead, utter devastation from Hurricane Dorian stretching for miles across the Bahamas as Americans brace for the storm to strike the U.S. Dorian is a historically harsh storm, the strongest ever hit the Bahamas, as far as we know, one of the slowest-moving hurricanes on record, second-strongest winds in the Atlantic Basin ever. While scientists cannot definitively say that the climate crisis is making these hurricanes stronger, there is evidence that warming ocean temperatures are contributing to their intensity. It's all part of our Earth Matters series. And joining me now is Gabriel Vecchi. He's a climate scientist from Princeton University. Professor Vecchi, thanks so much for joining us. I I know you can't draw a specific link between Hurricane Dorian and the climate crisis, but what, if any, links can be drawn between our changing climate, global warming, and the amount and severity of the storms and weather events that we're seeing?
7: So... What we're seeing and what we think we should be seeing due to global warming is an increased probability of storms becoming severely intense, like Dorian has, and doing so in a very rapid way, a process that we call rapid intensification in the field. So what we, the way to think about it isn't whether global warming caused or did not cause Dorian. That's a, a question that is impossible to answer but rather thinking about the odds of Dorian and how it was changed by global warming. An analogy that I find useful in this uh, is, imagine a baseball player that early in their career hit a lot of home runs, Uh, later uh, takes some performance enhancing drugs and hits even more home runs. We know that the extra home runs were uh, enhanced by the steroids, but uh, we don't know which particular uh, home runs were the ones that were enhanced. And so what we can talk about is that the odds of home runs were changed, that is, the odds of extreme hurricanes are changed, but we cannot specifically say this hurricane or that hurricane was made more intense.
1: Interesting. And when it comes to severe weather, we should point out that hurricanes are not the most glaring example of how climate change is is contributing to extreme weather. There are other much more
7: stark uh, extreme weather examples. Exactly. Things like extreme rainfall events, uh, heat waves, or even this more gradual sea level rise and how it uh, makes uh, coastal communities more vulnerable to certain weather hazards by bringing the ocean closer to people. Tonight,
1: CNN is going to host an unprecedented town hall on the climate crisis with 10 of the Democratic presidential candidates. Each one is going to put out their own plans to try to fight this emergency. What specifically do you think our viewers should be looking for in terms of the proposals themselves, uh, carbon reduction, eliminating fossil, fossil fuels altogether, reaching out to the markets—what what do you think?
7: Well, I—I'm I, not—I I know what I will be looking for. I'll be looking for plans that recognize the reality of uh, the climate uh, change as as us scientists understand it, and then also to try to find creative solutions that. Uh, Uh, recognize the multiple realities, the multiple uh, factors that one needs to consider, economic, political, et cetera, and come up with realistic solutions to slow uh, the rate of greenhouse gas uh, concentrations in the atmosphere, emissions, and also that include adaptation measures, ways for us to deal with the climate change that we are going to have to live with.
1: All right, Professor Gabriel Vecchi uh, from Princeton, thank you so much. Appreciate your insights. Uh, You're welcome. And don't forget, we're just minutes away from the unprecedented CNN town hall on the climate crisis with 10 of the Democratic presidential candidates. The live event kicks off at 5 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. As President Trump gets briefed on Hurricane Dorian, we have some new reporting on what might be really bothering him. It does not involve Democrats this time. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead now and the ever-changing explanations by Vice President Mike Pence and his aides about why he stayed at President Trump's golf resort in Doonbeg, Ireland, which was more than 180 miles away from Dublin, where the vice president's meetings were taking place. This controversy, just the latest example of the Trump administration spending millions of your tax dollars at Trump's properties. Again, that's the president putting your money into his own pocket, as CNN's Pamela Brown reports.
8: As he leaves Iceland...
0: Thank you for the warm welcome.
8: ...and heads for London, Vice President Mike Pence still playing cleanup on Isle, Ireland. Today, Pence's office offering a third explanation for booking the VP's entire entourage, including the Secret Service, at President Trump's Irish Golf Resort in Dunebeg, 180 miles from his official meetings in Dublin. First, the vice president's chief of staff said Trump himself suggested Pence stay there. Mark Short saying, I don't think it was a request like a command. I think it was a suggestion. Then Pence dodged the question, saying it had to do with his family ties to the area and the resort's ability to accommodate the large group. They say you're enriching the president. What's your
2: response to that criticism? It's wonderful
9: to be back in Ireland.
2: For many reasons, Ireland is so important to the United States of America as a trading partner. The opportunity to stay at Trump National in Dunebag to accommodate the unique footprint uh, that comes with our security detail and other personnel uh, made it logical.
8: CNN has learned President Trump was irked he was blamed for the controversy. So after the White House denied the president had any involvement, Pence's office released this explanation overnight. At no time did the president direct our office to stay at his dune-beg resort, and any reporting to the contrary is false. Even though Trump has suggested in the past, cabinet officials and advisors stay at his properties while traveling. And he himself has spent 289 days of his presidency at Trump properties. And here at the White House today, President Trump was emphatic, again, that he had no involvement with Vice President Pence staying at his property. He said he didn't even suggest it, so directly contradicting what the Vice President, Chief of Staff said. And he also uh, advertises property, essentially, Jake. He said, the only involvement I have is that I own it. It's a great place. It's beautiful and wonderful. Jake?
1: All right. Pamela Brown, thanks so much. And Caitlin, uh, you have some new reporting on how this all played out in the frankly, bizarre series of explanations.
6: People knew this wasn't a good idea. The president has made these suggestions, recommendations, whatever you like to call them, before that cabinet officials, his advisors, should stay at one of his properties when they're somewhere where there is one. Typically, their aides have ignored it because they knew it would ignite a firestorm like the one we're seeing right now with Mike Pence and his aides. Of course, the president says he didn't even suggest it, even though Mark Short said that he did. And now this is playing out where Short is now being you know, essentially targeted the president saying, no, I did not say what my vice president's chief of staff is saying. I said, I'm told that the president was furious when, after he learned that Mark Short said that he had suggested it, essentially putting the credit for the president on why they picked that location to stay in this tiny town that we should know is less than a thousand people. The president was so furious about it that that third statement that Pam was talking about there came out about 3.30 in the morning in Ireland. Of course, not typically when most people are awake issuing statements on someone's behalf after Short has already spoken and the vice president has already appeared on camera over it.
1: But, but Laura, why would the president want to deny this given the fact that he has publicly said that all of the people in his administration should stay at his resorts and properties. He even, a week or two ago, suggested that the next G7 take mm-hmm. place at one of his properties. I mean, the idea that he's trying to push people into to stay at his hotels is not a secret.
10: Right. It wasn't a surprising revelation that he potentially suggested this to Pence because, as you just said, he has been advocating for everyone to stay at Durrell. So I'm not sure why the president became so agitated about it other than just that uh, there was, you know, well-documented New York Times reporting about the extensive trip that this would cause Pence to take, um, as well as, you know, uh, conversations about, well, this makes it easier for the Secret Service if Pence stays uh, at this resort because Trump has been there before, even though actually that doesn't really make sense because the trip would then be Longer across the island to carry out the state visit. Yeah,
1: it's 180 miles away. I mean, I don't know exactly. If that's like and
6: Dublin is a big city where there are multiple hotels that the mm-hmm. president, yeah. the vice president, could pick to stay. in. It's the negative
11: coverage that mm-hmm. is bothering the president. Also, pl- don't you think he wants pe- people to think that people just want to naturally stay there? Not that. Right? Not because that he's they are him to. Well, because the, you know, by all accounts, business is down at Trump properties since he's become president because there are a lot of people that are unhappy with the way he is running his presidency. So to make it seem more organic, like, oh, people just, you know, they just love my hotels because they're so amazing. I just, it seems like he's trying to just constantly sell this idea of trying to get people to go to his hotel. And
1: Bill, the, the, the left-leaning watchdog group Crew, Citizens for Responsibility Ethics in Washington, tweeted, quote, it's impossible to imagine that there was no place closer and more convenient and cheaper in essentially all of Ireland than this. It's clearly not convenient. It's clearly not efficient. There's really no explanation besides promoting the president. And we should point out that when President Obama... Uh, went to Belfast and Dublin. He stayed at hotels near Belfast and Dublin. And when Vice President Biden at, uh, went there, he stayed at the ambassador's residence in Dublin. So th- th-
9: this is ridiculous. It is. It's interesting. So Mark Short is the vice president's chief of staff. In the first year of the administration, he'd been the director of legislative affairs for the president. He is very well-respected, I would say. He's very savvy and used to dealing with the media uh, and he's very well plugged in with the entire White House. He's some, some, some of us vice presidential chiefs of staff for a little bit uh, on the outs occasionally with our colleagues in the West Wing. But short is very. Pla- so Sh- Mark gave an amazingly detailed account. I would say actually very rare. You maybe you shouldn't have. You should have said, "I'm not going to talk about conversations between the president and the vice president." But he gave her an account which, i when you read it, sounds like he was in the room. There was a meeting about the trip, and they were going through the stops. And the president said, and the, and the president said, hey, you should stay at my place. Says, I don't know. We're not a, you know, it's just a suggestion. It wasn't a command.
1: Not a direction, right? Not
9: a direction, which I think actually legally it probably was important for the, him. He, I think Short thought he was doing his best to take the president off the hook of actually ordering the vice president to, you know, channel an awful lot of taxpayer money, an awful lot of people accompanying the vice president on a foreign trip, Secret Service, et cetera, uh, channeling that money to the president's pocket. So Short thought he was doing a good deed for the president. But it didn't play well. And now they've turned on Mark Short. But, I mean, again, Mark Short I just is a, I mean, you know this better than I do, but he is a se- senior and well-respected, right, and well-liked person in the White House. I and mean,
6: also the larger, well, not by the president right now because of what he said, but the larger point of this is <laughs> this trip was supposed to be about diplomacy. The vice president is making multiple stops in several countries. He's going to London tonight. He's going to be dealing with Boris Johnson, who's got this problem of his own going on. And it was supposed to highlight Pence's family ties in Ireland. Neither of those things are happening right now. The only focus is where he decided to stay in a hotel one night because not only they made the decision to stay there and assumed they were not going to get questions about staying at one of the president's properties, but also the fallout from the reaction to it. I can, so I've been Having
9: been on some of these trips, it's nuts. I mean, if you go to a foreign country and visit the president of that country, which is what Pence was doing on an official state visit... You stay in the capital, right? Stay in the nice hotel in the capital. You don't stay 180 miles away at your boss's country club because you have some alleged connection to the town nearby, which you could stop at on the way out and make a courtesy visit, you know. But the idea that you're not staying in Dublin is kind of an insult, really, to the Irish.
1: Just one other thing I want to bring up on taxpayer dollars. The secretary of defense, Mark Esper, uh, has now authorized the use of three point six billion dollars in military construction funds, that will now be diverted and used for wall projects on the southern border with Mexico. Defense Department officials say 127 million, uh, I'm I'm sorry, 127 military construction projects will be put on hold in order to use that money for the wall.
10: Mm -hmm. Yeah, in states across the country. And so this is just another example. They took from FEMA about a week or so ago. They're taking from the Pentagon this week. It's all a part of the effort by Trump to really rush to try to say that he created some semblance of a border wall when it's actually just reinforcing and making certain existing structures stronger but so that way he can use that on the campaign trail heading into 2020
1: because he and the republicans failed to be able to get that money through the normal process Congress, right and so now they're playing fast and loose with the uh, appropriations mm-hmm. uh, everyone stick around we've got more to talk about breaking news about the west texas gunman and why he failed a gun background check years before the horrific massacre stay with us back with breaking news international lead sources tell CNN that the Odessa Texas shooter failed a background check in 2014 when he tried to buy a gun because he had previously been adjudicated as quote a mental defective that's the legal term and he had been committed to an institution the shooter later bought his gun through a private sale private sales do not require background checks which gun reform advocates are trying to change despite public pressure in three mass shootings since the beginning of August Senate majority leader Mitch McConnell is once again signaling he will take no action to tighten restrictions on gun ownership or firearms purchases. But as CNN's Tom Foreman now reports for us, Walmart is taking action.
2: The slaughter that left 22 dead in a Texas Walmart, along with other recent shootings, spurred the mega retailer to action. Walmart has been slowly pulling back from the gun market since the 1990s, eliminating sales of handguns and assault-style weapons and raising the purchase age. But now the chain will stop selling ammunition for such guns, too, and is asking customers to not openly carry their weapons into Walmart stores. It's clear to us that the status quo is unacceptable, the CEO said in a memo. The stores will keep selling shotguns and long-barreled rifles, but he added, we encourage our nation's leaders to move forward and strengthen background checks and to remove weapons from those who have been determined to pose an imminent danger.
10: We have not had reasonable gun safety
2: laws. Democratic presidential candidates who favor tighter gun controls called the Walmart move a step in the right direction and the right thing. But on the Republican side, the trend is moving the other way. Less than a month ago, President Trump seemed ready for stronger limits on gun sales.
3: We need meaningful background checks so that sick people don't get guns.
2: Then he talked to the head of the National Rifle Association and Trump's emphasis shifted to mental health.
3: It's not the gun that pulls the trigger, it's the person that pulls the trigger.
2: Now, the White House is preparing a so-called buffet of about 15 policy proposals, according to sources none expected to pass, and is talking about the death penalty for mass shooters. It all stands in stark contrast to Walmart's pointed call for real change, which has been taken up by companies like Kroger and Dick's Sporting Goods. Still, Republican leadership in the Senate says nothing will move until Trump says so. If the president is in favor of uh, a number of things that he has uh, discussed openly and, and publicly, I'll put it on the floor. So why isn't Trump making his position clear? Because while polls show most Americans favor some kind of new gun controls, many Republican voters emphatically do not. And Trump has very little chance of winning re-election without them, firmly in his corner. Jake?
1: All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Uh, polls suggests that former Vice President Joe Biden is the clear front runner in Iowa. So why is his campaign already lowering expectations there? Stay with us. In our 2020 lead today, polls show Joe Biden is the front runner in the Democratic race, including in Iowa, but his campaign is now trying to lower expectations. One advisor saying, quote, Do we think we have to win Iowa? No. Do we want to win Iowa? Yes, we do. We think we're going to win. We know it's going to be a dogfight, unquote. Kirsten, why would the Biden campaign convey something like that? Is this just standard lowering of expectations or is there more going on? I mean, I
11: assume they're they're lowering expectations because they have a reason to believe that he might not win. That's the only reason that you would do that. And the reasoning behind it seems to be that they think he's going to do better in states that aren't uh, that have more uh, non-white voters uh, because he still has a lot of support among black voters, primarily. Probably because of his association with Barack Obama, and so looking at the first two states, you know, they may be looking at it and saying these aren't our, aren't going to be our voters.
1: Uh, do you think this was a, 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 anything more ominous? I mean, like I, I, he's still a front runner by a lot, but I think people think he has a glass jaw.
9: Yeah, we'll see. I mean, people have thought that for a while, and so far it hasn't really manifested itself too much, but. Look, what is the history, you have to be in the top three in Iowa and the top two in New Hampshire to win the nomination, I think, in modern times in both parties. And you really need, I think, with one only one exception to win one of the two. And so, you know, you can talk all you want until so I'm waiting for, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for South Carolina where yeah. my voters show up. But I think if, if you don't win one of the first two primaries, if you're the former eight year vice president of the United States who served with Barack Obama, who's been ahead in the polls the whole time, if suddenly you're beaten in Iowa and New Hampshire, you're in deep trouble, I think.
1: I want to bring the topic back to gun control, which we talked about in the previous block, because former Congressman Beto O'Rourke spoke to CNN this afternoon. He has a mandatory buyback plan for semi-automatic assault weapons, uh, so-called assault weapons. Take a listen.
7: We talk about mandatory buybacks of the AK-47s and AR-15s, millions of them on our streets, in our homes, too often used against us. 22 people killed by an AK-47, a racist white supremacist terrorist in El Paso on August 3rd. The only way we're going to we're going to make a dent in this kind of violence and fear is to buy them back.
1: But but Congress can't even pass universal background checks. That's a story I've literally been covering for mm-hmm. 20 years, the idea of closing the so-called gun show loophole. I remember talking to John McCain about it in 1999. If they can't even close the gun show loophole, as it's called, can a gun confiscation program, a gun buyback program, really be discussed as a serious policy?
10: Well, that's a big question with proposals like this, but this is a a noticeable and significant evolution for O'Rourke, you know, in his campaign, which is uh, attempting to come back, I guess, claw back into the lead, and he during his Senate run last cycle supported um, he supported no more sales of assault weapons, but he said, oh, we'll have a voluntary buyback if if anyone wants to sell the government uh, back their gun, then then we'll do that. But I will not do a mandatory. And so now he is taking, since El Paso, a very sharp line uh, to go in a different direction and say that, this is where I'm going to try to forge ahead of other Democrats by saying that it needs to be mandatory.
1: Yeah, but beyond Bed O'Rourke's kind of YOLO address to this, that he's just like, you know, going to do anything, there has been some real uh, conservative backlash to this proposal. Uh, take a listen to, uh, we talked about John McCain in a second, I'll take a listen to Meghan McCain this week
8: wants to have a mandatory gun buyback. The government didn't own the guns to begin with. How do you think you're going to come to somebody's house, and what are you going to pay? This is a ground-level issue for me. If you're going to be a gun grabber, you don't get my vote,
4: period. You know, one, we got to have a different kind of conversation.
8: Point- what do you think? And we talk so much about
6: how Republicans aren't sure where to go on this, what to do. There's reasons like this is because they are, they have constituents who fear that When people start talking about strengthening background checks, red flag laws, that the next step are things like what Beto O'Rourke is proposing. And these are people who do abide by the law. So that's why you do see that pushback. And that's why it allows the White House Republicans to kind of languish after there are so many shootings about where it is that they're going to go next. And that's what you're seeing right now. The president has not settled on any concrete proposal, even though Congress is coming back to Washington from recess next week, which is when they said they were going to make a proposal on this. And essentially, it's because lawmakers are waiting to see what it is that the president would support. And so far, he has not made that clear.
1: One other thing I wanted to talk about, uh, which has to do with the inspector general for the Department of Health and Human Services, put out a report today that found that the migrant children who had been separated from their parents as part of the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy at the border last year experienced extreme anxiety, feelings of loss, quote, Separated children exhibited more fear, feelings of abandonment, and post traumatic stress than did children who were not separated, including, quote, acute grief that caused them to cry inconsolably. This was, I think, without question, one of the lowest moments of the Trump administration.
11: Yeah, and it's also, you don't, I mean, I'm glad they did a report on it, but you don't need a report to know that if you take children away from their parents and they don't know what's going on, that they're going to be traumatized. I mean, this is completely knowable. And, and, and so to treat children this way when they're, they're most vulnerable, they're most impressionable, uh, you know, the things that happen to you when you're at that age can take a lifetime to get over. Um, and so to, to take them away from their parents, and obviously the parents were traumatized as well, but you're traumatizing children um, and it's, it's just utterly shameful for the United States government to have behaved this way.
1: It is embarrassing on behalf of Americans. Thanks, one and all, for being here. It's being called a fight to the political death with at least one insult I promise you you've never heard before. Stay with us. In our worldly today, chaos, confusion, name-calling, finger-pointing, and a lot of yelling. The disarray unfolding in London today over what analysts are calling a fight to the death, the political death, that is, over Brexit. Here's just a small glimpse of some of the turmoil.
2: He's desperate, absolutely desperate,
0: to avoid scrutiny.
4: Yes, yes, to birthday. And? birthday.
1: You great big girl's blouse. I've never heard that insult before. CNN's Bianca Nobilo is live in London outside Parliament. Bianca, explain for us what exactly unfolded today.
12: It's hard to know where to begin, Jake. In fact, it really (laughs) begins yesterday, which was Boris Johnson's first vote that he ever faced as prime minister, and it came as a crushing defeat. He's now faced four votes as prime minister, all of them defeats owing in no small part to members of his own party, rebelling against him and then fighting against the government in order to take control of the parliamentary agenda. Usually in the United Kingdom that's something that the government of the day controls but not anymore. Parliament wrestled back control, taking control of business from 3pm today in order to block Boris Johnson from his Brexit strategy. So they wanted to remove the option of him leaving the EU without a deal. So far they've been successful in that in response Boris Johnson said that he wants to call for a snap election he tried to do that and he failed So now we're looking at a prime minister that not only lost his only one majority MP yesterday, but then managed to lose four votes in the space of two days and then now cannot carry through any of his key legislation or even call an election. Truly unprecedented political times, Jake.
1: And Bianca, President Trump said today no one should worry about Boris Johnson because Johnson knows, quote, how to win. What does this all mean for Boris Johnson's future?
12: Well, the reason he was pushing for an election is because it was his least worst option. He had tried and exhausted everything else. The only thing he had left to do was to try and change up the numbers in the House of Commons so that he'd have a better chance of getting his key legislation through. But now Parliament have thwarted him in even doing that. It's likely, though, because of the level of confusion, that there will be a general election in the United Kingdom at some point over the next weeks and months. But the question is, is would he even win that election? Yes, he's a lot more charismatic than his predecessor, Theresa May. But the polls, even though they're slightly in his favor, don't indicate that he would get a resounding majority. So President Trump might be a little premature to make that assessment.
1: All right, Bianca Nobilo in London. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead, CNN. CNN's unprecedented live town hall on the climate crisis with 10 Democratic presidential candidates